You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. Hey everybody, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, and this guy over here to my virtual right. Dave, how are you doing this week? I am virtually doing well. Good deal, good deal. Oleander's looking pretty uh, pretty nice. Uh, we... Uh, have a lot of people staying at the hotel because uh, there's some overflow from Sandy from the Goat Olympics. How's I, I've been I've been out sick all week, uh, just kind of watching uh, the Sasquatch. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the Sasquatch on Hulu at all, but it's about it's, it's crazy. It's it's about pot farmers and people getting torn up by Sasquatch. I highly recommend it. But I didn't get to hear anything about the Goat Olympics. What's going on with the Goat Olympics? Well, you know, we we we, we had our, our our little. Well, we couldn't have a torch ceremony because you know everything's under red flag warning. Yeah, yeah. So we had the uh, Goat Olympic flashlight ceremony. Okay. Nice. Uh, stick ceremony. Uh, and so Goat Olympics, unlike you know national teams. Each team is represented by a farm uh-huh. or a business, you know, okay. Oblivion. You know, it's going to be hard to beat, you know, Oblivion's Blood Goats. But yeah. The, you know, the team, the team that I'm really got my eyes on, is uh, uh, Capricion Biotech. They oh. make uh, animal steroids. Okay. Uh, and so they've got this goat team that looks like it's, it looks like about half sheep and a half elephant. You know, you look at them and they're coming up to my my neck and stuff. So they're they're going to be the team to beat. But uh, you know, uh, I, I think we got a chance at the raisin eating contest. I think that's the that Uncle Owen's farm's best entry this year is going to our best chance for a, a medal is going to be the raisin eating contest. Well, you've got the silver from two years or four years ago and uh, the uh, bronze from uh, eight years back. So I think it's probably in. Uh, uh, Uncle Owen's uh, farm's favor. Uh, what I'm worried about, though, is you're talking about these genetically engineered goats. I hope none of them get loose. Uh, certainly not into the Oregon countryside and uh, raise cane. But you know, nothing like that ever happens around here. So not around here. Yeah. So what are we not talking? That, not that they would fall in love with a, a pot farm ripping up Sasquatch and have babies. Yeah. Not here. I certainly hope they don't like breed with blood goats and then have like elephant blood goats but you know so hey what are we talking about this week i've i was out sick i kind of so, read the memo but not really so i believe that you're going to be talking uh with a friend of the show um ken Hyde. yes and I believe that we are scheduled for abdul al-hazarad that is my favorite batman villain i'm so excited we're talking about him this week uh yes uh, that's not Ra's al Ghul. Uh, who's Ra's al Ghul? Ra's al Ghul is Batman. With uh, Lazarus Pitts and Talia as his yeah, daughter? And, and Damien's grandfather. Are you sure it's not Abdul I, Al-Hazred? Ra's al Ghul. And, okay. And, you know, and, and then his daughter got taken in France and he got on the phone and says, uh, I have special uh, uh, skills. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's 
uh, Ra's al Ghul. But I, I read the Doom came to Gotham, and Abdul Al-Hazred wrote... Book. What's that? Which is a brilliant book. Yeah. It was, wasn't he in that? Didn't he write that? Wasn't... Didn't he write the Necronomicon in that? Yes. But, so... Um, and for those who have not read that book, it's a classic, one of the first of the uh, sort of other worlds, where mm -hmm. Ra's al Ghul is um, Abdul al-Hazrad. Uh, and then it is uh, written, of course, by... Uh, the creator of Hellboy, uh, mm -hmm. Mike Magnolia. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I thought, other than me, he was the only person who made, made the connection. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I guess I did on accident. Kind of, <laughs> except for the doom that came to Gotham, is, he's a separate character. All right. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to double check with Ken about that. So uh, yeah, we're going to be talking to Ken about Raja Ghoul and I mean, Abdul El Hazrat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, I think the only thing uh, you and I really chatted about uh, maybe the last week or the week before was uh, uh, how how Lovecraft's uh, grandfather and I think it was like uh, grandfather and his f grandfather's best friend, Albert Baker, invented the name for HPL when he was very young. You said five. I, I was guessing six, but that's somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. he was young because um, he was basically cosplaying the Arabian Nights. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it was uh, S.T. Joshi at some panel uh, mentioned that the name All Has Read may have been a uh, reference to uh, Lovecraft's uh, literacy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, so like, Abdul means slave. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but they're, they're not going to, despite what you see in the you know, movie, there's not going to be a lot of people of Arab descent that's first name is Abdul. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's like Abdul Allah, you know, I'm, I'm God's slave or something. Yeah, yeah, no, but, uh, well, I mean, I don't really expect uh, Grandpa Whipple and uh, Albert to uh, know that, so. <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking about that with Ken. Any Lovecraft stuff, any mythos -y type stuff you've been up to, uh, reading, anything like that lately? So, I am started a book that is non-mythos -mythos that uh -huh. we might talk about. Ooh. Uh, it's not mythos directly, but it's cults. Nice. Very cool. It's a book, and I'm only about about page 40 through 180. Mm -hmm. And it's called When Prophecy Fails. Ooh. And it is a, a true story. It's 1956. Mm -hmm. And there is a group of people who, you, all you can do, all you can call them, it's a UFO cult. Yeah. And they predict or, no, I'm sorry, the book was published in 1956. The events took place in 1954. Okay. And so they protect this, this lady starts automatic writing. Mm -hmm. or she just starts writing things down. And she believes it's first, you know, her spirit of her father. Mm -hmm. And basically getting messages, you know, tell your mom that she needs to do this to keep the garden going. Yeah. Uh, and then she starts getting contact with space brothers and a, a creature, or being called the elder brother. Hmm. And it becomes, and there's no other way to describe it, it becomes a UFO cult. Or okay. rather, be a UFO cult. But they predict that in 1950, the world is going to get flooded. All the rivers are going to flood, all mm -hmm. the ocean. And, and that the only people that will survive are those who follow the instructions from the Space Brothers, Ooh. you know, the aliens. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so what is interesting is this team, I think it was two psychologists and a sociologist who wrote the book. Yeah. They embedded themselves in to this group before, after, um, before, during, and after the prophecy. Mm-hmm. And they did something that, honestly, I think is a little underhanded. Yeah. But they got basically grad students to join the group under false pretense. Yikes. So they got basically, it's the only sort of documentation of before, during, and after of a doomsday cult. Huh. And, and how they reacted. And it's a small, it's a small, there was only maybe. 33 people all total mm-hmm. that, that believed in it. But it's getting a lot of traction. I, I hadn't heard of this. I doubled on it last week. I hadn't heard of it, but it's getting a lot of traction huh. because a lot of people are comparing it to QAnon. Okay. Now, I came across it because I study UFO cults. Yeah. But, so, so it is interesting in that, and, and like I said, I'm only in the, the, the first, you know, 30 pages or so, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it. Cool. But it, it's interesting that these aren't uneducated people. One of yeah. them's a doctor for a, an entire university. They're not evil people. They're not crazy people. Mm-hmm. But how they got so embedded in this prophecy and how their life became part of it. Yeah. That how and how they reacted when it didn't come true. Crazy. Interesting. Lovecraftian, but cultists. Yeah. Uh, maybe when I finish the book, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I, I honestly haven't been listening to uh, or reading or anything much uh, Lovecraftian stuff as of late. I have been listening to a podcast called Your Favorite Band Sucks, which I have to highly recommend. I uh, th- There's a lot of podcasts out there that I want to recommend. I want to always recommend HP Podcraft, and I always want to recommend folks like Blurry Photos, uh, small, smaller podcasts that do a lot of stuff. Uh, there's... Uh, Mythos uh, podcast that we just uh, uh, talked to last week, whose name I can't remember. Modern Mythos? No, I can't remember. <laughs> I are correct. Yeah, Modern Mythos. Okay. But um, your favorite band sucks. Uh, it, it's not very sci fi, it's not very fantasy. It is very, very uh, trolly, though. Uh, they find bands that people have huge. Uh, fan bases of and then they pick apart they they read all the things that other critics have said and they just kind of are like this is why your favorite band sucks and it's a very interesting to 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 like bands that like if you're like really into when you're like 13 or 14 and then have kind of a nostalgia for and then have two adults kind of pick apart why this is why Blink-182 isn't a good band. This is why Steely Dan is terrible. This is why, and it's funny, and they, they also are very trolly about it, as I said, and, and they're trying to get people to get upset and stuff like that, but not in a really mean way, just in a very honest way. And listening to them talk about Steely Dan is just a lounge act, just got me so kind of irritated, and I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing, awesome, cool, they succeeded, this is a su- successful podcast. And no offense, because I'm as deep as a you know music lover as anyone. Oh yeah. But that's cult dissidents. Yes. We forgive our music cults stuff that we know on the surface or deny it, uh-huh. you know, because we're so emotionally attached to them. Oh sure, sure. But I, I think it is really nice to hear criticism about stuff and go, you know what? 
yeah, the police wasn't that good of a band. And you know what? I shouldn't be ashamed of being really into them when I was 11. <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I still like the police. Um, the band. Sting the band. <laughs> What's that? Sting Rules. Sting Rules, yes. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I've been up to besides being sick and just listening to podcasts and watching stuff about stoners being attacked by Bigfoot. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess we're going to be talking about... See, I planned for Raja Ghoul uh, for D&D on D&D, so we're going to have to talk about that, I guess. But um, up next, we've got Ken Height, then we've got The Break, and then uh, me and Dave are going to be talking about Raja Ghoul, and then we've got some stuff about natural disasters, and uh, yeah. So are you ready for that, Dave? I am ready. All right, let's get going, and we'll see you after the break, everyone. Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today. Hey everyone, we're back, and uh, I'm here again with Ken Height. Ken, how the heck is it going? Pretty good. It's a nice day outside, which we always like. Yeah. Um, we, we do not get that many nice days in Chicago in July, so mm-hmm. uh, when you get one, hug it to you, cherish it, treasure it. I, I, I keep having this uh, confusion with... Uh, a certain Batman villain and a certain uh, writer of the Necronomicon. We're, we're going to leave that part out of the show, and we're just going to focus on <laughs> Abdul Alhazred. Uh, there which you go. I, I've, 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 seen, I've seen it, the, the name, written several different ways. I've seen it pronounced different, like, oh, no, we don't put the Abdul in the front, and we do it like this. And uh, what's... what's uh, guy who wrote the Necronomicon <laughs> in the fiction of the... Cthulhu mythos, unless we want to do the tongue-in-cheek thing and pretend like it's all real, but that's not what we're doing here, the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. What what can you tell us about Abdul Alhazred? Uh, the thing that we know about Abdul Alhazred is that he wrote the Necronomicon. Yeah. That is his claim to fame, such as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lovecraft uh, refers to him as the Mad Arab. Yeah. Uh, so he, you know, may have been a little bit around the bend um, uh, when he was uh, writing it, or writing it may have been what pushed him over. Sure, sure. Um, he is uh, from Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that because of in the history of the Necronomicon, Lovecraft says that he uh, came out of Sana'a, which is uh, the capital of Yemen. Gotcha. Um, was uh, uh, active during the Umayyads, which was the uh, first uh, caliphs yeah. after. Um, uh, uh, the family of Muhammad stopped being in charge of things. All right. And so he's circa 700 AD. Uh, we know that he traveled around a little bit. He saw the ruins of Babylon, the subterranean secrets of Memphis. Uh, those were the catacombs yeah. under Memphis when he wrote to um, uh, 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 Clark Ashton Smith, changed it just to the subterranean secrets of Memphis. And then spent 10 years alone, and this was sort of his visionary moment, one assumes, in uh, the Rub al-Khali, um, uh, the, the the great empty quarter of Arabia, mm-hmm. although Lovecraft says, or also the Crimson Desert, which is a desert that is 
northwest of the Rubal Kali, so uh -huh. pick a desert. <laughs> and the notion is that uh, he penetrated to Irem, City of the Pillars, yes. which was the city of, of demons and, and pre-human entities uh, cursed by Allah at the beginning of the Quran. Mm -hmm. And so there he learns horrible truths. And uh, while in Arabia, he writes the first sort of um, uh, couplet of uh, the Necronomicon is, of course, the famous, that is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons, even death may die. And of course, this is Lovecraft uh, being blasphemous, as mm -hmm. he often is. Yeah. I, mean, I think we've talked even about how um, uh, Wilbur Whateley is a parody of Jesus Christ. Well, in this case, Al Hazard is a parody of Muhammad, who famously, a proclamation of faith mm -hmm. is the first a bit of the Quran where it is narrated to him by angels um, and uh, by the angel Gabriel, in fact, and he has the poetry flow into his head and he starts preaching it. And that's how Islam starts. Well, in this parodic Islam, mm -hmm. uh, Al-Hazred has demons and evil spirits and monsters because of course, Al-Azif is the cry of the, of the night demons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's the original uh, Arabic name of the Necronomicon, according to Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, and so um, uh, that instead of uh, the angel Gabriel revealing the word of God, it is these horrible night demons uh, out in the desert that reveal to Al-Hazred uh, the Necronomicon. And right. um, so he uh, writes it down and then uh, moves to Damascus, uh, one assumes to... Uh, preach uh, or uh, make uh, alchemical money. We don't know what he's doing in Damascus. Sure. Uh, wizards hang out there. Maybe he's with other wizards. Maybe he just goes there to get enough parchment to finish the Necronomicon. And then, according to Lovecraft, he is uh, seized by an invisible monster in broad daylight mm -hmm. and devoured horribly before a large number of fright-frozen witnesses um, uh, and this was in the year 738 AD. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and Lovecraft also hints that um, he found uh, the Nameless City from the story, The Nameless City, although in The Nameless City, the narrator does not believe that even Al-Hazred saw The Nameless City. Hmm. So we have a sort of a, you know, some say this, some say that, the sort of fun lack of closure that Lovecraft likes to throw into his mythology. Um, and then Lovecraft does... Uh, explicitly say uh, he's not a very good Muslim, <laughs> which I, I think is fair. Yeah. Um, and that he uh, worships Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu. Um, right. Although, interestingly, and this may be my favorite Al-Hazred fact, um, and God knows who doesn't have a favorite Al-Hazred fact, but I think my favorite Al-Hazred fact is that uh, in um, Mountains of Madness, we're told that he denies that Shoggoths exist. Yeah. Right? He says <laughs> that in his alkaloid dreams, right, it talks about that maybe he has visions uh, while um, uh, high on various desert plants, mm -hmm. um, that he sees Shoggoths in his visions, but he swears in the pages of the Necronomicon, oh, those aren't here anymore. Those are gone. They were taken care of. So... Even Al-Hazred, even the OG Cthulhu Mythos guy is terrified even of hallucinating Shoggoths. Wow. That's how bad the mythos is, right? <laughs> is that yeah. the guy who gets closer to the mythos 
theoretically than any other human being lives to tell not just the tale but the tale mm -hmm. and even he is like oh no 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 shagas they're not real that's messed up i just dreamed them <laughs> no there's no shagas and of course what we know from lovecraft's fiction is there's shagas all over the place oh, yeah. there's shagas in maine yep. for god's sake they're not even just frozen in antarctica there's a shagas you know being bred off the coast of innsmouth yeah places lousy with shagas yeah and so if that's true how much worse is the world than Al Hazred paints it. And with that one tiny detail, Lovecraft uses Al Hazred to just demonstrate how terrifying and awful his cosmos is. It's, it's just one of the best things in Lovecraft, and it's certainly my favorite Al Hazred fact. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that that moment that even Al Hazred doesn't have the stones to just straight up say, yeah, we are full of shoggoths. <laughs> even Al Hazred has something that he cares about and is worried about. And, uh, and that notion, it, it sort of humanizes him in a way, right? Mm -hmm. he, he becomes a little more human than, you know, even Joseph Kerwin, who clearly doesn't care that he's going to open the gate to Yogg-Sothoth. Yeah. So a question I, I ask you a lot, how, how would you use uh, Abdul Al-Hazred in a story or if you were going to be cooking up a uh, Call of Cthulhu campaign or something like that. What what would be the best way? You know, not 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 to use your best stuff, but what what, what would what would be probably a good way to use him? Or would you use Abdul Al Hazred? I mean, you have to use at least the the identity, right? The mm -hmm. name mm -hmm. of Al Hazred, because it's 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 standard, right? Yeah. If you if you are unless you're specifically changing all the names, so your Arkham becomes Oakham and your um, Cthulhu becomes Zathalthal or something, yeah. why would you not use Alhazred? It'd be like not using Shakespeare in a game about England, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to use uh, our guy. Okay. Um, and so you can either just use him as a, uh, you know, sort of a, a name check. Mm -hmm. Like you find a... A, a square of parchment and uh, it has Al Hazred's name on it. And you think, Oh, did he write this um, in the same way that you might um, have a game about, you know, chasing down rare pieces of Shakespeare's handwriting. You could imagine that there's an occult version uh, of uh, mythos sorcerer types that chase down rare pieces of Al Hazred's handwriting. Mm -hmm. um, you could uh, have him appear in dreams and visions because yeah. obviously if he's a, uh, a mythos adept. He is capable of breaching the walls of time and space. Whoa. And uh, we know that he has, he sees Shoggoths in his dreams. So he is, and he thinks that that meant that he went way back in time to uh, when the Shoggoths were around. Um, but, you know, maybe he's summonable in dreams and visions by your main bad guy. Hmm. Um, maybe El Hazred uh, has some other, um, you know, uh, elements that are left over. There, of course, uh, August Derleth wrote a very sort of touching story called The Lamp of Alhazred, mm -hmm. um, which is about, uh, really, it's about H.P. Lovecraft and uh, and his death. And it, uh, The Lamp of Alhazred, when you rub it and light it, it, it shows visions of, of horrible worlds. So he can be sort of a, a name for any sort of uh, uh, Arabian Nights sort of magic item that you want to have around. Gotcha. Um, I have a couple of different times mm -hmm in various games that I've run or uh, written uh, implied uh, a search for the tomb of Alhazred, Ooh, right? That yeah. um, uh, 
that Alhazred, uh, you know, even though he, he was, you know, torn apart by invisible monsters, the little bits would be collected up by his uh, worshippers. Maybe some of them would eat the bits of, of Alhazred mm -hmm. like they do in Lang, sure. corpse-eating cult. Um, but enough of him would be around that it could be, you know, in a tomb somewhere. And obviously, you know, the, the sky's the limit as to what's going on in the tomb of Alhazred. Does he become a, a hound lich like the Lang uh, sorcerer Ooh. does or, or like the Dutch sorcerer who stole yeah. the item from Lang does? Does he become a, um, a, a, a sand dweller if you're going all Durlethi on you? <laughs> yeah. Does he um, uh, simply, you know, rise up like one of the worm things in uh, the festival, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, or... Uh, if you've got a Joseph Kerwin type, did someone scrape his um, uh, body down for essential salts and reanimate him? Uh, Abdul Alhazred wandering around in the modern era. Um, and you can play that either he's been, he was reanimated back in the 1890s and he's been gathering power for a century, or you could have it, nope, he was literally just reanimated the other day. He instinctively obliterated the laboratory of the guy who reanimated him because he did not want to be uh, turned into a, a, a mind-controlled uh, custodus like mm -hmm. um, Kerwin did with his... Uh, remember, Kerwin, when he reanimated guys, he would then torture them to get magic information out of them. Yeah. Alhazred would perhaps see that coming. Um, he's got to be at least as tough as the guy in the uh, numbered urn yeah. uh, that uh, 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 Willet accidentally awakens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe he's wandering around like sort of an evil Doctor Strange, you know, doing magic and um, assembling things. You could put him in a Supers game if you wanted. Marvel Comics has, has added him into their continuity oh. uh, somehow. Huh. Um, uh, I think he crossed over with Tarzan in the Tarzan comics and he's fought Wolverine. <laughs> so, you know, is, is, is a, you know, Marvel supervillain already. So, you know, your, um, uh, your dream of a Ras al Ghul, Abdul Al-Hazred team up is just one, uh, uh, one crossover away, really. <laughs> yes, let's have the amalgam of, uh, <laughs> of the two. <laughs> yes. Let's actually forget that amalgam ever happened. Um, yeah. Maybe Ras al Ghul finds Al Hazred's bits, dumps him into the lab Lazarus pool, and he climbs out healthy and, and, and ready to go. The, the, the notion of what would Al Hazred be doing in the modern era can be anything from, well, he's assembling an army of mad dedicated killers sure um it's like sort of a mythos version of isis yeah or maybe he's like i want no part of these crazy muslims i was you know they know that i'm a bad muslim i, yeah. I hate isis they'll kill me um and he's you know trying to stay a, you know one jump ahead of their witch hunters and so you're like oh isis is literally the worst but they're hunting al hazard mm, hard choices and, and I think that would be a fun narrative. And, and then the motive of whoever woke up Al Hazred is a good motive to ask. What did that guy think he was going to accomplish? Yeah. Did he just, he just not, he couldn't get a copy of the Necronomicon. And so he wanted a new one dictated by the master. <laughs> um, you know, what's, what's his goal? What's his, what's his story? So I, I feel like you've got a lot of, and it, it seems odd to even have questions about human motivation in, in, a, in a thing like this, but yeah. Those are the things that make story happen. Sure. Uh, you know, right? It's it's not... If, if you don't have a human motivation um, for your bad guy, at best, you have the color out of space. Um, and at worst, you have, a, you know, Poseidon Adventure, right? It's yeah. It's just a disaster movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nothing happening. Two things pop in my head right away. One, Lovecraft really figured out a lot of different ways to bring 
ancient wizards back to life. <laughs> and uh, the other one that just popped in my head is like, oh man, you can really like mess with people if like someone's like whole campaign, like the bad guy's whole thing is like, I'm gonna bring back um, Abdul Al-Hazred and just like is given the wrong information by people and is just like summoning an aspect of Narlathotep or something like that would be also, and so it just popped in my head is like, that's what I would do. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I can absolutely get the idea of people who were like, you know, I don't know. I just, I just could. So yeah. I did. <laughs> I don't need a reason. I found it online. I don't, exactly. It was a, it was a bit. I was dead. I did it for TikTok. <laughs> All right. Well, Ken, thank you again so much for coming on and talking to us about Abdul Al-Hazred, the creator of the Necronomicon creation of hp lovecraft and speaking of hp lovecraft if you want to check out more of ken's stuff you can look for uh, oh uh tour to lovecraft the destinations uh where's that available ken tour to lovecraft the destinations is available in uh right now it's on the atomic overmind press website uh so you can definitely get the pdf there very cool uh the copies are in america they're being I don't know what's happening to them because I'm not the publisher. I'm sure. the author. Uh, I assume that at some point a big pile of uh, book plates for me to sign will show up. And at that point, uh, we will be uh, weeks away from or a week away from it being shipped out to all the uh, very, very patient, very, very beautiful backers. Nice. Um, I'm hoping, cross fingers, that there will be copies at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Providence Ooh. in August uh, that I will be going to as my... Uh, consolation prize for not getting to go to the uh, film fest in Portland this year. All right. Well, we're going to miss you there, Ken. But yeah, and uh, if you want to hear Ken some more, check out Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff everywhere you find your podcasts. And uh, yeah, again, Ken, thanks. We'll have you on next time to talk about something I'm sure, if not as cool, is equally as cool. But yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there's no shortage of coolness in the Lovecraft mythos, which is why. We're still talking about it 100 years after he invented it. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks again, Ken. No problem, man. Anytime. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic, and sometimes not-so-classic, Monster Movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. 
Hey everyone, we're back from the break. Oh, we wait, hope. Wait, wait, counting. Is everybody still here? Oh, let's okay. check. I think. Yep, I think everybody's still here. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think anyone got up. Okay, cool. So, hey, uh, everyone, you're still here. That's great to hear. We hope you're having a good commute. We hope you're having a good day at work. If you're cleaning stuff, doing yard work, well, we hope that, you know, you can hear us over the lawnmower. Uh, so, Raja Ghoul. Like, D&D on D&D, Call of Cthulhu, I don't know, any kind of, like, even Shadowrun kind of game. I don't know, those are the ones that I always kind of bring up, because those are the ones that I'm kind of familiar with, like cyberpunk, futury stuff, uh, gothic horror, cosmic horror, and then, you know, fantasy. It's like, how would you use a character like that? And could you use a character like that in all three at the same time? Like, say, if you had, like, a... a a game that spanned like from medieval times into the deep future you could use that character for a, anyway i'm getting ahead of myself dave what are your thoughts so uh, the f i first came across raj Ghul. i wasn't really in comics i didn't really get into comics until after i graduated college sure. i had my own spend on it okay but i had a, i had a roommate that was really into batman and you know we only you know he, we only shared the apartment for like two months, uh -huh. but he was really into Batman, and this was '86, uh, and DC reprinted the original Russia Gold. I never heard of Russia Gold yeah. back in '86, and so the so he was telling me all about it, and so the thing of that and before they brought him back, and I guess that, that he only appeared like three or four times or something mm -hmm. like my friend. But the thing that was that Rasha Ghoul figured out that Bruce Wayne was Batman. Mm -hmm. And that he did this by tracking where certain things like Batman used, like the Batman, where the pizzas were purchased. Mm -hmm. And he, tr so that's the first thing that if you're going to use him as the, the big bat, yeah. is that Rasha Ghoul has, he knows how to attack people. Where you know the Joker never thought of trying to track him. Yeah. And, and Batman goes through and, and I, my friend describes destroys the receipts. I, I mean I can't be that easy, I suppose. <laughs> but you know Joker didn't think of this. So so Rasha Ghoul is this tactician, mm -hmm. the, this just brilliant tactician that knows how to attack his enemy in in less ways. And you got to sort of think about that. And you got to sit down your character and say. What is their weakness that I haven't used yet? Yeah. But the, the problem with that is you can't be so good that you immediately wipe them out. Yeah, yeah. Um, with, with brilliant tacticians like that, what I like to do is, like, have a bunch of people come out, you know, do, do my best to, like, you know, kind of, like, overwhelm the people a little bit, and then have, like, people either start disappearing or just start dying or whatever, and then have your your master tactician clap his hands and go, all right, you did what I wanted to do, now let's talk. And that's that's one way that I've always felt is kind of like, I don't know, overwhelm your people and then just be like, oh yeah, this is just a minuscule representation of who I control and what I can do. You saw my foot guard. This isn't even like anything major. I mean, you can do that with like, and just kind of like always have like uh, a brilliant tactician like that, always like at the end of something, come out unscathed and be like, that's what I planned. Everything went to plan. I'm a super genius, but <laughs> your mileage may vary on that kind of stuff. So let's say you're going to use Rashogul 
in a D&D game. Yeah. What alignment would you make him? It's a tricky one. That's a tricky one because I'm like, is he is he neutral? Is he neutral evil? Is he chaotic neutral? Um, I mean, depending on uh, how long he's been in the Lazarus pit, I guess, is uh, how chaotic neutral he is. I don't know. It's Roger. Uh, Ra- Ralph the Rooster gave his answer. I don't know if you heard Ralph. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can't. Yeah, that's. I guess it depends on who's writing Raja Ghoul. <laughs> yeah. and, and and you're right. How crazy it is with a, uh, you know. But I, I would say lawful evil. Yeah. Okay. Because he's got this sort of plan, and the thing is, he doesn't see. He does evil things. Yeah. But he doesn't see himself as evil. He sees him doing evil things for the greater good, and you know, destroying. The, the cancerous, the destructive part of civilization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so civilization can progress. Oh, sure, yeah. And that's why, that's why uh, things like the Society of Shadows or, you know, they make such good bad guys even yeah. if you don't necessarily have um, Rosh Ghoul. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, the other person that I think Besides, I, I think I've always sort of associated, uh, you know, Abdul Al Hazarad with Raja Ghul. Yeah. But the other person that I think that he is based on, mm-hmm. and I have no reason to say this, but sure. other than reading Batman, is the old man in the mountain, who was the leader of the Hashemite, the assass- the historical assassin class. Sure, sure. I, I always felt there was a little bit of King and I in there, but that's that's me. <laughs> you know what? If you look at the way that he was originally drawn, there's probably some Vincent Price in him. Too. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, no, a little bit of uh, Yul Brenner, King and I, Vincent Price, kind of. Um, yeah, no, no, but definitely, definitely the um, oh goodness, the the Thuggy cult, I think it was, or Thug. I can't remember how it's pronounced. Yeah, yeah Thuggies were from India. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and the assassins were from. Persia. Okay, well, see, right. I'm just mixing all kinds of stuff up. <laughs> but yeah, and I so you know, even if, even let's say you're not gonna have, the you know your your little third level characters, they're not gonna take on twentieth level Rashal Ghoul no. for a long time. But you could have you know, the minions. You know, you could have his, his people. You could be fighting them for years. Oh and yeah, years, levels and levels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or he even pops up on their radar because he's got so many, you know, you know, so many fingers and so many pies. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I just think about like I have used Raja Ghoul type uh, characters in Shadowrun for sure because I saw Batman the animated series while I was playing Shadowrun in my early twenties, teens, whatever it was. Uh, and yeah, no, it's like. That's that's like even I don't know. In my opinion, it was even cooler than the Dragon President storyline that was going on. I never cared much for like official Shadowrun stuff. I just liked the tech in the cities and stuff. And we had our main bad guy be this like Raja Ghoul type master of assassins who just like you know we get a fixer, we get a Johnson, oh we get a Johnson who's like hey, I know someone who needs something. And then slowly, it's like you start realizing that you're part of a much, much, much bigger thing. And then you realize that the much bigger thing that you're even a part of is just some small little dinky part of this huge thing of assassins, which is even just like even a component of this dude's empire. And it's just like, oh, 
his, his, his lowest people could make us disappear. His lowest people are, like, more powerful than anyone in the organizations that we normally deal with. Like, you know, these, like, I don't know, super scary shadow organizations that span multiple countries kind of things that, like, you know, that kind of stuff is kind of interesting in, like, modern games, but seems a little bit harder to do in fantasy unless you start talking about, like, assassin guilds or thieves guilds or, like, trade guilds. <laughs> So you could definitely build a D&D &D game like that. And sure. Guild, I think, is a great one. I'll tell you what game I think is fantasy game that is really um, designed for it, though. Yeah. Is Modiphius is a D20 um, Conan, uh, Conan. Adventures of the uh, Age, uh, you know, Undreamed Age. Yeah. That, especially if you get, like... Um, uh, Conan the Thief, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or or maybe come, which it talks about, um, you know, basically different thieving classes and on some of the areas, but uh, also Conan the King, which caused, uh, you know, oh, the different political intrigue and sort of combine that. I, I think it makes, like I said, you could you could of course make a D D D game based on that. Yeah, especially like, um, you know, make it. Instead of assassins, it's the elves. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's the elves, and you got a party of half elves. So which side did they go on? The humans or these mysterious, manipulative elves, or or, or make it the fae? Oh yeah, yeah. Or or if if it is elves and you have a bunch of half elves, it's like what if like the elves are like high elves and they're like, hey, we have a secret that can make it so that you're either like full elves or you have the whole the the life of an mm -hmm. elf. It's like, what, wait a minute, what? Yeah, yeah, no, you don't have to die after 60 years or whatever humans die as. You can you can live, like, longer than trees. But but I really think Conan is is really designed for this type of bad guys. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no, it's, I, I think about that, and it's it's like Raja Ghul, um, Abdul Al-Hazred, yeah, no, that, that that would be a great kind of Conan bad guy. A very good kind of, like, uh, sword and sandal, head of a massive cult, you know, kind of. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that would be fun. That would be yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. But, but you see, I, I think... I think you could... I think it would take a little bit more work, but you could do it to a D&D &D game. <laughs> and... I think maybe the, the thing with the D and D game, yeah, is he doesn't sh he and his people don't show up every adventure. No, you have just regular. Oh, it's just oh look, it's just a regular dragon pillaging a, a town. How yeah. quaint. Yeah, and, you know. And the next adventure, it's you know, the the Cyclops is actually a, a, a diplomat and you know, uh, those uh, tenth level warlock spells. So. I think that that's it. So you never know whether or not it's really um, this guy or not. Oh, yeah. And if we do want to go even, you know, get, get more Lovecraftian, we can actually go. Uh, this is a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Batman Beyond. I, I, do you know what I'm talking about with Batman Beyond and Raja Ghoul? Uh, so is this the Thing at the Doorstep episode? This is the Thing at the Doorstep episode where... Yes. <laughs> but I, I can't remember it. Uh, Ew, gross. Yeah. <laughs> Where uh, you want to explain to people that aren't really 
Batman Beyond fans and Lovecraft Dream fans who haven't figured out what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was an episode of Batman Beyond where Bruce Wayne was, I think it was Bruce Wayne was given a chance to, uh, like, become the new Raja Ghoul or become a master of Assassin's Head or something like that. Mary Talia Ghoul. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I haven't seen it in 20 years. But, yeah, yeah. get back together with Talia. But we find out is that Talia actually has her father's mind in her head instead, much and, like and Talia, and Talia is his daughter, is Rachel Gould's daughter. Yes, you don't know who that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that just makes kind of a thing at the doorstep kind of ending for Bruce Wayne, um, which you know you could definitely do for your Conan types or whatever. Like uh, even even like have him be have your Raja Ghoul be killed off and like his daughter who like may be in love with one of your characters but also you know wants to be loyal to her father or something like that and then like several episodes or several sessions later you find her again but then you start to realize that he has taken over her consciousness you know something like that might be for your bad guy. Like, you just really show how much of a bad guy he is. Like, he's going to take over his daughter's consciousness so he can continue to survive. I mean, uh, that's a bad guy. <laughs> and do you think that to have a Raja Ghoul type character, do you think it's important to have a Talia Ghoul character? So, I love... So, in lit literature... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love the femme fatale. Yeah. I love the noir. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A, a Talia al Ghul character would add so much to a campaign and the storyline. Yeah. And throw people up just doesn't exist. Or, 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 or make it a, a male one. But here, here's the problem. Yeah. It's sometimes harder to create a femme fatale character in a role-playing game. Yeah. It's write it as a story because you know now you've got to present this uh, even a, a foil mm -hmm. and the characters can reject her yeah uh, kill her just feel maybe uncomfortable with the romance yeah uh so absolutely i think that if you've got the right party that the femme fatale or even a, a female foil or a mm -hmm. male or just a foil character uh, yes, uh, and it doesn't have to, you know, maybe not the romance. What if it's uh, like a, a ten-year-old genius child that is still pure? Yeah, yeah. So I that there has to be sort. Of, I think that this conflict with the father figure is great, uh, but but it's sometimes hard to pull off in role playing. Yeah, yeah. That that makes sense. That makes sense. I was just thinking of uh, other stories that w might actually like benefit from like a Talia Ghoul type character, and I was thinking, what about the most dangerous game? That would have been nice with a femme fatale type in it, but I'm like, well, <laughs> especially the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, especially so. So, yeah, uh, you've got a party of adventurers, mm -hmm. right? There. What brings them to the castle? What brings them to the island? Yeah. You know, the femme fatale would be perfect. Yeah, no, no. I was, it's like, if, if you can't figure out how to... I mean, if, if you don't want to have, like, a shipwreck or, like, a plane crash or, you know, you you, you arrange something like a femme fatale type or even... Uh, oh, goodness. Uh, 
whispers whispers in darkness kind of like maybe femme fatale is like oh i've heard so much about you i need you to come all the way out here you know it's uh i i have all these amazing things i need to show you and i've heard about you your group and that you will want to see these here's you know just kind of like kind of to lure someone out and then maybe something else happens like the father finds out and is like no or outer elements uh something anyway but yeah that's one anyway <laughs> i'm just rambling right there yeah anything else we can think of dave you know i this and there is i think very much sort of the this persian beautiful uh you know Arabian Nights, mm -hmm. but you know you can sort of throw it off and, and make the Rashia Ghoul character something different. Make it a an AI, yeah, or you know, or or an alien. Uh. Um, I, I mean, I think the obvious D and D connection mm -hmm. would be a leech. Ooh, yeah, uh, but but maybe that's. Too obvious, you know. You also got mummies and vampires and all these other people. I, I love liches, though. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but, um, you know, you really want to throw them off. The other thing is, you know, just like, you know, Killmonger. You know, Rachel Gold's got a point. Yeah. He's trying to save the Earth. Yeah. So he not come. He 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 did. Like I said, you know. So maybe if you want to get rid of some of the more violent methods of his make, make the characters you know you're kind of you're the rangers you're out there in safe environment yeah they need to convince the racial ghoul or the racial ghoul's you know daughter or son character mm -hmm. hey you know your motives are right but not your methods yeah yeah so you know maybe 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 the, the party is part of this shadow organization. Cool. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Wow. That was that was pretty good, Dave. I think uh, I think there's some stuff out there that people could use. Some ideas that someone could slap together to make some plot hooks uh, involving a Raja Ghoul or Abdul Al Hazred type character. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Dave and uh, DB talk about D&D. D&D uh, &D on D&D, &D, I guess is really the title. And also, thank you for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, Dave, do you have anything to say to the folks before we start uh, wrapping things up? Just go ahead and, and, and root for Uncle Owen's Goat Farm in the Goat Olympics Raisin Eating Contest. And you can go to pgttcm.com and get an Uncle Owens t-shirt if you go to our store. And, uh, hey, if you want to help out the show in other ways, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about it, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll ship you down to Sothogwa. I'm going to have to make that shirt at some point in time. We are on the Instagram, we are on the Facebook, and we are on the Twitter. You can find me and Dave on Facebook as well. I don't know. I'm not always that, uh, you know, unless, unless we have, like, 50 mutuals, I generally don't like friend people. But I don't know about Dave. He'll he'll tell you. <laughs> I, 
I have like 4,000 friends. I don't know any of those people except my aunt. But, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we have had a lot of uh, people just join us on Facebook, and that is really awesome. Thank you, everyone, who's just joined us on Facebook and Instagram and even on the Twitter, PGTTCM, PGTTCM.com. Thank you again, and join us next time when we'll be talking about something mysterious or mythological or just something about the mythos. So we'll see you later. Say goodbye, Dave. Bye, Dave. Hey, everyone. Are you still sticking around? Do you uh, want to hear about some uh, natural disasters and other horrors? Well, uh, William H. Godfrey, or whatever the guy's name is, uh, who wrote that. I haven't looked at my notes for a moment. Uh, yeah, we got that coming up. And yeah, so thank you. And uh the next episode will be about that. Not, not the next full episode of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. But hey, you want to find out what's going on with People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos? Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any place that uh, I just mentioned. And yeah, you'll find out what's going on uh, at least a week in advance or so. Because I'll be asking people, uh, desperately uh, asking for guests based off of uh, people who I know. All right. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby, Chapter 10 Oh, Father, I hear the church bells ring. Oh, say, what may it be? Tis a fog bell on a rock-bound coast, and he steered for the open sea. Oh, Father, I hear the sound of guns. Oh, say, what may it be? Some ship in distress that cannot live in such an angry sea. O oh, Father, I see a gleaming light. O oh, say, what may it be? But the Father answered not a word, for a frozen corpse was he. At daybreak on the bleak sea beach, a fisherman stood aghast to see the form of a maiden fair lashed close to a drifting mass. The salt sea was frozen on her breast, the salt tears in her eyes, and he saw her hair like the brown seaweed on the billows fall and rise. One of the most destructive storms on record, and certainly the most terrible ever known on the whole English coast, is the Great Storm of 1703. It is the only storm which has ever been made the subject of a parliamentary memorial. It raged for a week over nearly the whole of England. Scores of vessels were driven on shore and perished. At Bristol, the indriven sea filled the merchant's cellars, destroying sugar, tobacco, and other produce to the value of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Eighty people were drowned in the river and adjacent marshes. Fifteen thousand sheep were drowned by the overflow or backing up of the Severn. At London, the river was filled with vessels, the crews of which were nearly all on shore. The storm tore them from their moorings and drove them into a bite on the opposite side of the stream. It was a strange sight they presented after the storm. Defoe says that there lay, by the best account he could take, few less than 700 sail of ships, some very great ones, with Queen Shadwell and Limehouse inclusive. The posture is not to be imagined, but by them that saw it, some vessels lay heeling off with the bow of another ship over her waist and the stern of another upon her forecastle. The bolt spurts of some drove into the cabin windows of others. Some lay with their sterns tossed up so high that the tide flowed into their forecastles before they could come to rights. Some lay so leaning upon others that the undermost vessels would sink before the other could float. The number of masts, bolt spritz, and yards split and broke. 
the staving the heads and sterns and carved work, the tearing and destruction of rigging, and the squeezing of boats to pieces between the ships is not to be reckoned, but there was hardly a vessel to be seen that had not suffered some damage or other in one or all of these articles. In the city itself, the streets were covered with tiles, slates, bricks, and fallen chimneys. Common tiles rose to nearly six times their usual price. Numbers of people were killed by crumbling roofs or falling houses. In Gloucester, 600 great trees were prostrated in a space of five acres. The Bishop of Bath and Wells and his wife were among the more noted dead. The total loss of life has been estimated at from eight to 30,000. The former is defosed, but as he only counts those of which he obtained direct personal information, this estimate is certainly too low. A single item of this storm will give some idea of the peculiar dangers once incurred by shipwrecked sailors. Mr. Wimper writes, The townspeople of Deal, in particular, were blamed for their inhumanity in leaving many to their fate who could have been rescued. Boatmen went off to the sands for booty, some of whom would not listen to poor wretches who might have been saved. Many unfortunate shipwrecked persons could be seen, by the aid of glasses, walking on the Goodwin sands in despairing postures, knowing that they would, as Defoe put it, be washed into another world at the reflux of the tide. The mayor of Deal, Mr. Thomas Powell, asked the Custom House officers to take out their boats and endeavor to save the lives of some of these unfortunates, but they utterly refused. The mayor then offered from his own pocket five shillings a head for all saved, and a number of fishermen and others volunteered, and succeeded in bringing 200 persons on shore, who would have been lost in a half an hour afterwards. The Queen's agent for sick and wounded seamen would not furnish a penny for their lodging or food, and the good mayor supplied all of them with what they required. Several died, and he was compelled to bury all of them at his own expense. He furnished a large number with money to pay their way to London. He received no thanks from the government of the day, but some long time after was reimbursed the large sums he had expended. One not versed in the tales of the past might be astounded at such inhumanity, yet the case cited is comparatively a mild one. People acquainted with the history of pirates and buccaneers know that coasts everywhere were once more or less infested with land sharks, more merciless than any shark of the deep, who enriched themselves by the misfortunes of others, and drowning sailors would be disregarded in the race for plunder. Yet this is but a shadow of the fearful tragedies often enacted. Picture a richly laden vessel, homeward bound, with scores of eager, anxious hearts on board, and other scores in port eagerly awaiting them. The captain smiles thoughtfully as he murmurs, We shall be at home tomorrow. The mother with child in arms repeats as she thinks of the waiting husband, We shall be home tomorrow. The bronzed wanderer, returning after years of adventure, wonders if his boyhood's home is changed as he thinks, I shall be home tomorrow. There is but the faintest indication of storm. In shore, cruel, sinister faces scan the sky and the distant ship as the twilight settles down, and whisper together and scowl as they recall past disappointments. They will take care that they are not disappointed again. Their grizzled old leader will see to that. Night gathers apace. The storm bursts. The ship is far offshore and in safe quarters. It is time to act. Now, in the pitchy darkness of the night, with bowed head and faltering steps battling against the storm, the old man leads a white horse along the edge of the cliff. 
To the tip of the horse's tail a lantern is tied, and the light sways with the movement of the horse, and in its movement seems not unlike the masthead light of a vessel rocked by the motion of the sea. A whisper has gone through the village of a chance of something happening during the night, and most of the men and many of the women are on the alert, lurking in the caves beneath the cliff, or sheltered behind jutting pieces of rock. The vessel makes in steadily for the land. The captain grows uneasy and fears running into danger. He will put the vessel round and try and battle his way out to sea. The lookout man reports a dim light ahead. What kind and whither away? He can make out that it's a ship's light, for it is in motion. Yes, she must be a vessel standing on the same course as that which they are on. It is all safe, then. The captain will stand in a little longer, when suddenly, in the lull of the storm, a hoarse murmur is heard. Surely the sound of the sea beating upon rocks. Yes, look, a white gleam upon the water. Breakers ahead, breakers ahead. Oh, a very knell of doom. The cry rings through the ship. Down, down with the helm, round her too. Too late, too late, a crash, a shudder from stem to stern of the stout ship, the shriek of many voices in their agony, green seas sweeping over the vessel, and soon broken timbers, bales of cargo, and lifeless bodies scattered along the beach, while the shattered remnant of the hull is torn still further to pieces with each insweep of the mighty seas as they roll it to and fro among the rocks. Fearful and crafty, the smile that darkened the face of the willing murderer who was leading the horse with the false light as he heard the crash of the vessel and the shrieks of the drowning crew. Fearful, the smile that darkened the faces of the men and women waiting on the beach as they came out of their places, ready to struggle and fight among themselves for any spoil that might come ashore. A homeward-bound ship from the Indies. Great good fortune, rich spoil. Bale after bale is seized upon by the wreckers and dragged high upon the beach out of the way of the surf. But see, a sailor clinging to a bit of broken mast. With his last conscience effort, he gains a footing on the shore, staggers forward and falls. Is he alive? Not now. Why did that fearful old woman kneel upon his chest and cover his mouth with her cloak? Dead men tell no tales, claim no property. No fiction of fancy, this. Only the last great day will ever reveal how many souls have perished at the hands of those who should have succored them. Think of a man and his wife reaching the shore after an exhausting struggle, the man leaving his wife in a sheltered nook while he goes in search of human habitations, and returning after a few moments to find his wife a plundered naked corpse. And yet such practices were tolerably common, even within the range of a century past. In striking contrast with the heartless wreckers are those known on the British coast as hovelers. These put out to sea in stormy weather to ascertain if vessels in the offing are in need of anything or are otherwise crippled, and many a ship have they saved from wreck by their timely aid. It appears strange that, among a people so dependent upon the sea as the English, no regularly organized methods of diminishing the losses by wreck existed till within the present century, yet such is the fact. A hundred years ago, there was no boat that could safely venture in a heavy sea, and if, perchance, some humane people wished to succor a vessel in distress, few were the means and terrible the risks. The graphic pen of Dickens in this abridged narrative will illustrate the case. The scene is Yarmouth, England. In the difficulty of hearing anything but wind and waves, and in the crowd and the unspeakable confusion, and my first breathless efforts to stand against the weather, I was so confused that I looked out to sea for the wreck and saw nothing but the foaming heads of the great waves. 
A half-dressed boatman, standing next to me, pointed with his bare arm, a tattooed arrow on it pointing in the same direction, to the left. Then, oh great heaven, I saw it close in upon us. One mast was broken off short, six or eight feet from the deck, and lay over the side, entangled in a maze of sail and rigging, and all that ruin, as the ship rolled and beat, which she did without a moment's pause, and with a violence quite inconceivable, beat the side as if it would stave it in. Some efforts were even then being made to cut this portion of the wreck away, for, as the ship, which was broadside on, turned towards us in her rolling, I plainly described her people at work with axes, especially one active figure with long curling hair, conspicuous among the rest. But a great cry, which was audible even above the wind and water, rose from the shore at this moment. The sea, sweeping over the rolling wreck, made a clean breach and carried men, spars, casts, planks, bulwarks, heaps of such toys, into the boiling surge. The second mast was yet standing, with the rags of a rent sail and a wild confusion of broken cordage flapping to and fro. The ship had struck once, the same boatman hoarsely said in my ear, and then lifted in and struck again. As he spoke, there was another great cry of pity from the beach. Four men arose with the wreck out of the deep, clinging to the rigging of the remaining mast, uppermost the active figure with the curling hair. There was a bell on board, and, as the ship rolled and dashed, like a desperate creature driven mad, now showing us the whole sweep of her decks as she turned on her beam ends towards the shore, now nothing but her keel as she sprung wildly over and turned towards the sea. The bell rang, and its sound, the knell of those unhappy men, was borne towards us on the wind. Again we lost her, and again she rose. Two men were gone. The agony on shore increased. Men groaned and clasped their hands. Women shrieked and turned away their faces. Some ran wildly up and down along the beach, crying for help where no help could be. I found myself one of these, frantically imploring a knot of sailors whom I knew, not to let those two lost creatures perish before our eyes, when I noticed that some new sensation moved the people on the beach, and saw them part, and Ham come breaking through them to the front. I ran to him, held him back with both arms, and implored the men with whom I had been speaking not to listen to him, not to do murder, and not to let him stir off that sand. Another cry arose on shore, and looking to the wreck, we saw the cruel sail, with blow on blow, beat off the lower of the two men, and fly up in triumph round the active figure left alone upon the mast. Against such a sight, and against such determination as that of the calmly desperate man, I might as hopefully have entreated the wind. Master Davy, he said, cheerily grasping me by both hands, if my time has come, tis come. If taint, I'll bide it. Lord above bless you, and bless all. Mates, make me ready. I'm a-going off. I don't know what I answered or what they rejoined, but I saw a hurry on the beach and men running with ropes from a capstan that was there and penetrating into a circle of figures that hid him from me. Then I saw him standing alone in a seaman's frock and trousers, a rope in his hand or slung to his wrist, another round his body, and several of the best men holding at a little distance to the ladder, which he laid out himself slack upon the shore at his feet. Ham watched the sea standing alone, with the silence of suspended breath behind him, and the storm before, until there was a great retiring wave, when, with a backward glance at those who held the rope, which was made fast round his body, he dashed in after it, and in a moment was buffeting with the water. Now he made for the wreck, 
rising with the hills, falling with the valleys, lost beneath the rugged foam, borne in towards the shore, borne on towards the ship, striving hard and valiantly. The distance was nothing, but the powers of the sea and the wind made the strife deadly. At length he neared the wreck. He was so near that with one more of his vigorous strokes he would be clinging to it, when a high, green, vast hillside of water, moving on shoreward from beyond the ship, he seemed to leap up into it with a mighty bound, and the ship was gone. On running to the spot where they were hauling in, I saw some eddying fragments in the sea, as if a mere cask had been broken. Consternation was in every face. They drew him to my very feet, insensible, dead, beaten to death by the great wave, and his generous heart was stilled forever. Such things weighed heavily upon the humanely disposed, and when a century ago Mr. Greathead, who had a great heart, stood at Newcastle on Tyne and saw man after man drop from a great wreck into a raging sea without the possibility of rescue, he set himself to work upon the problem of the lifeboat. Noticing that half of a circular wooden bowl invariably turned concave side upward when thrown in the water, it occurred to him at once that a boat with a curved instead of a straight keel would always right itself. Would have, at the same time, was advocating padding the boat heavily with cork, and the first lifeboat was constructed from these ideas. A year or two later, a minister in the Orkneys suggested that all boats could be made self-writing by fixing an empty, watertight cask in either end. So the idea of air chambers developed, and later the curved keel was made of iron to aid in ballasting the craft, so that the modern lifeboat, with curved iron keel, cork padding, air chambers, and tubes to permit water to flow out, cannot be sunk or made to float bottom up. The men may sometimes be washed out of it or a side stove in, but the boat will always be found right side up. Strange as it may appear, though, the first lifeboat, with its crudities, saved hundreds of lives within a few years. The government took no steps to institute a general system or life-saving service. To the average American, this seems striking. But governments a century ago were more concerned about the success in war than about the welfare of the masses. They studied destruction of life more than its preservation, and if perchance some ruler affected peculiar concern for the welfare of the state, it was generally the case that the definition of Louis XIV was applicable. The state, that's me. But Sir William Hillary and Thomas Wilson made earnest appeals to the Parliament for the establishment of a national life-saving institution and Hillary added the more effective argument of many deeds of personal daring in the venturous work. Between 1821 and 1846, no fewer than 144 wrecks occurred on the Isle of Man, and 172 lives were lost, while the destruction of property was estimated at a quarter of a million. In 1825, when the city of Glasgow steamer was stranded in Douglas Bay, Sir William Hillary assisted in saving the lives of 62 persons, and in the same year, 11 men from the brig Leopard and nine from the sloop Fancy, which became a total wreck. In 1827-32, Sir William, accompanied by his son, saved many other lives, but his greatest success was on the 20th of November, 1830, when he saved in a lifeboat 22 men, the whole of the crew of the mail steamer St. George, which became a total wreck on St. Mary's Rock. On this occasion, he was washed overboard among the wreck with three other persons and was saved with great difficulty, having had six of his ribs fractured. So the British institution arose, small at first, but mighty in its work since. 
Ten years after, in 1850, it was reorganized and improved lifeboats secured. The importance of the work may be imagined when we record that from 1852 to 1871, the wrecks on British coasts alone averaged 1,446 per annum. When we add the work of our own life-saving service and the service of lifeboats in many other lands, we may realize how inestimable is the value of such an institution. Among the earlier measures to prevent loss of life are fog bells, fog horns, and lighthouses to warn the sailor of dangerous shoals. In earlier days, wreckers sometimes silenced the fog bell. Safi has given us a ballad upon the poetic justice said to have been meted out to a famous pirate who removed the bell placed by the abbot of Arborbrothick upon the Inchcape Rock off the Scottish coast. One year later, with a rich booty, the pirate nears home once more. They hear no sound, the swell is strong, though the wind hath fallen they drift along, till the vessel strikes with a shivering shock. Oh, Christ, it is the Inchcape Rock. So Ralph the rover tore his hair. He cursed himself in his despair. The waves rush in on every side. The ship is sinking beneath the tide. With this notice of the extent to which man may be responsible for disasters, the subject must be dismissed. Ere leaving the topic of storms, the reader shall know of one of the most notable naval disasters of the century, which will illustrate the difficulty in which even powerful warships faced high winds at sea. End of chapter 10Well, hey, thank you again so much. We'll see you next time. Listen to the next part coming up. And uh, yeah, have a good one. Remember to rate, review, subscribe everywhere you find podcasts. And that's it. See you around. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio.